Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 870. 870. And while you're finding your place, every now and then, uh, I will wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, perhaps a kid is crying, or I hear a noise outside that I think I should investigate, or maybe I'm just thirsty, or, or whatever the case may be. But every time, as I get out of bed, I have the same internal conversation in my mind. I ask myself, do I want to turn on a light or not? You see, on the one hand, if I turn on a light, I'll be able to see where I'm going. But at the same time, the light is probably going to make me wake up, and then I'm not going to be able to get back to sleep again. And so, every time, I choose to not turn on a light, and I try to walk around in the dark. And inevitably, after tripping over a toy, or running into a chair, or stepping on a Lego, uh, I end up wide awake anyway, except now I'm also angry and in pain. And I should have just turned on the light, right? Uh, the reality is, is that trying to walk around in darkness is not a good idea. And this morning, we're going to see that as, as hazardous as darkness is for us physically, it is infinitely more dangerous for us spiritually. And so we are in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 29. Luke writes, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater then Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so last week we read about Jesus being falsely accused about the spiritual nature of his ministry. As some of the unbelieving people in this crowd uh, accused him and, and claimed that he was actually empowered to cast out demons by the spirit of Satan rather than by the Holy Spirit. Right, and as we pick up the story uh, again this morning, we're continuing in that same episode. And so Luke sets the scene by telling us that the crowds continued to increase. And that's probably difficult for us to imagine as large as we already know the crowds were. Right, but Luke continues to emphasize that more and more and more people are flocking to, to see Jesus in person, to hear his teaching and to witness his miracles. Now, you'll remember from last week that in verse 16, in addition to being falsely accused by some people, there were some other people in the crowd who were testing Jesus, challenging him to show them a sign from heaven that proves that he is who he says he is. Again, as if delivering people from demonic oppression isn't enough of a sign. And so now Jesus takes the opportunity to address those people. In verse 29, he says, This generation 
is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has referred to a generation. We saw this uh, also back in chapters 7 and 9 as well. And you may remember that he's not literally addressing a, a group of people who were all born at this, in the same time frame, like, like baby boomers or Generation X or millennials or whatever. Because in that sense, there would be multiple generations represented in this crowd. Instead, Jesus is once again using terminology that points us back to the Exodus, as uh, the Lord frequently characterized those alive during the wilderness journey as an evil, crooked Uh, stiff-necked generation who consistently rebelled against him. And we've already seen several times that Luke is portraying Jesus as accomplishing a new and greater exodus. Jesus is the prophet who is greater than Moses. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is leading his people out of slavery to sin and death uh, through his ministry. We saw last week that Jesus' miracles correspond to the miracles that Moses performed in his life. And so as the Exodus parallels continue throughout the story, it should not surprise us that just like in Moses' day, there is a subgroup of the people who are actively resisting what God is doing through him. You'll remember that that for some of the people in Moses' day, it didn't matter that Moses actually got the people out of Egypt, which was humanly impossible. It didn't matter that the Lord had parted the Red Sea and allowed the people to walk across on dry land. It didn't matter that he led the people by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. It didn't matter that he literally rained food down from heaven to provide for them each day. None of this mattered. It didn't matter what happened. It was never good enough. And so these people were constantly a rock in Moses' sandal until the Lord finally executed judgment against them. And now in the same way, Jesus has taught with unparalleled wisdom. He has healed the sick. Uh, He has delivered people from demonic oppression. He has fed thousands of people from only five loaves and and two fish. Uh, He's raised the dead, even. But none of this matters, because for some people, they're just bound and determined to resist what God is doing through him. And so Jesus is using the phrase evil generation to characterize this unbelieving group and connect them to the rebellious Israelites during the time of the Exodus. It also serves as a warning that these people are in danger of experiencing judgment for their rebellion. This subset of people are never satisfied. They always demand another sign, but Jesus tells them at the end of verse 29 that no sign will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. Now, we went through Jonah back at the height of the pandemic. Back when the staff was recording our services on Saturday nights and then posting them uh, to YouTube on Sunday mornings. And so you'll you'll remember that the Lord calls Jonah to go to the wicked city of Nineveh and and call out against their sin. But Jonah doesn't want to go. And so he hops on a ship that's heading in the exact opposite direction to flee from the Lord's call. But the Lord always gets his man, and so the Lord captures, he traps the ship in a great storm at sea, and eventually Jonah gets thrown overboard to stop the storm, and the Lord appoints a giant fish to swallow Jonah, where he spends the next three days. And then finally, Jonah comes to his senses, and he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord orders the fish to spit Jonah back up onto dry land, and he commands him to go a second time to Nineveh. 
And this time, Jonah goes and he declares that in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be destroyed and the people respond. They they repent, they fast, they put on sackcloth and they humble themselves before the Lord. And so the Lord spares the city of Nineveh, which angers Jonah because he really wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. And so the story ends somewhat open-ended in that way. All this to say, something about Jonah's ministry is going to correspond to what Jesus does in his own. Uh, Although he doesn't explain exactly what he means by that. So is Jesus going to be swallowed by a giant fish? Or or is he going to to, uh, facilitate a great awakening of sorts? Well, no, but also yes. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, a similar account to what we have here, Jesus makes it clear that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then was delivered from death, in the same way he will be placed in the heart of the earth, right, in a grave, but then he will be raised back to life on the third day. And so we see that Jonah's experience in the fish ultimately points forward to what Jesus would do. And, and when Jesus is resurrected, that will be the ultimate sign that he is, he really is, who he says he is. But beyond this, I think that the sign of Jonah also includes the response of Gentiles to God's word in contrast to the Jews. We've seen a few times in the past this theme of people who are outside the community of God's people actually responding better to God than people who are in the community of God's people. Even though uh, God's design was always for Israel to draw the nations to him, Israel overwhelmingly failed to accomplish that. And and, and as we just mentioned, it made Jonah angry to see these pagans be spared from God's judgment. Well, in a similar way, as the gospel goes out through the early church in the book of Acts, a a lot of Jews are going to come to faith in Jesus, but a whole bunch of Gentiles are going to come to faith in Jesus. All all of these Gentiles are going to embrace this Jewish man, as their Lord and Savior. Once again, Gentiles will respond better than Jews. And so in Jesus, God's purpose of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth will finally be fulfilled, and that should also serve as a sign to the largely unresponsive Jewish people. And Paul discusses this more in Romans chapter 11. We continue to see this even more as Jesus advances his argument in verses 31 and 32. And so first of all, he refers to the queen of the south who came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. And so this is a reference to the queen of Sheba, who we read about in in 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, Now the exact location of Sheba is unknown, but it's it's generally uh, associated either with ancient Arabia or Ethiopia, both of which are far south of Israel. And so in in the story, in response to Solomon's humility, the Lord had granted him wisdom that surpassed anyone who had ever lived. And he blessed his kingdom with wealth and prosperity that even surpassed David's kingdom before him. And so when the queen of Sheba hears about it, she makes this long journey to see it herself. And again, in in the story, when she arrives in Jerusalem, she asks Solomon the hardest questions she can think of. And Solomon answers all of them. And she sees the glory of the temple and the prosperity of the people And the text says that her breath was taken away. She was speechless, and she worshipped the Lord in response. And so here we have a Gentile woman 
right, which is a double whammy in light of what we know about how the Jews felt about both Gentiles and women in general. And, and Jesus says that at the resurrection, she will testify against these people in judgment because she responded to the wisdom of Solomon. And yet these Jewish people who you would expect to respond properly are rejecting Jesus who is even greater than Solomon. And then in verse 32, Jesus comes back to Jonah again. And he says that in the same way, at the resurrection, the people of Nineveh will rise up against these people in judgment because they responded to Jonah's preaching. But Jesus is even greater than Jonah. And yet these people who should recognize him are rejecting him. And so we see that the, the responses of the, of the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba demonstrate that that the Jews are without excuse for their rejection of Jesus, a much greater form of divine revelation. And then beginning in verse 33, Jesus is going to explain the spiritual dynamics that are at play here in greater detail. And so we'll pick up again in verse 33. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part, of, no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And so picking up in verse 33, Jesus uses an illustration to communicate and explain what goes on in people's hearts as they respond to his message. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or, on a or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. And of course, we understand that, that there's no reason, if you light a candle or, or a lamp, to, to put it under something to hide the light, right? That completely defeats the purpose, right? You put a candle where it can be seen, and so it can be useful to people. All right, now the lamp here corresponds to Jesus, right? Jesus is the light. That's a consistent theme across the New Testament, but, but never more so than in Jesus' own claim in John 8, 12, where he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the first point here is that Jesus has come to bring light, right, which re represents purity and wisdom, and, and life into this dark world that is full of corruption and foolishness and death. And more to the point, he is right here, right? His mission is not covert, right? He is, is, is performing miracles and he's teaching in front of everybody and his call to respond is not unclear in any way, right? In Jesus, the light of salvation is on display for everyone to see. And this leads to the critical issue of the section, Right? In verse 34, Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And here Jesus draws a parallel between our physical eye, which is what enables us to see light physically, and our spiritual eye, meaning our heart, which enables us to perceive spiritual truth. Right? If our eyes are healthy, then we'll be able to see light. Right? But if our, our eyes are unhealthy, or if we're blind, then we will be unable to see clearly. Right? And the point here is that if people fail to appreciate and embrace 
the, the way of salvation through Jesus, it's not because of any deficiency on his part. Right? The problem is that people's hearts have been blinded by their own sin. It, it doesn't matter how bright a light is, if we are blind, or, or if we intentionally close our eyes to the light, then it's not going to do us any good. Now this leads to the conclusion in verses 35 and 36. As Jesus warns, therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. It will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. You see, part of the problem here is that these unbelieving people are convinced that they have light in of themselves. Right? But apart from Jesus, the, the reality is that all we have is darkness. Any form or system of morality that we attempt to follow is going to be full of sinful, selfish motivations and attitudes. Right? And if, if we really think about it and are willing to be honest, we have to admit that we are not nearly as good of people as we like to think we are. And how ironic it is that what we often consider to be light in us is actually darkness. It's the ultimate self-deception. And apart from Jesus, we have no real light. Now, I know you won't be surprised to hear this, as we keep seeing in Luke how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation. But I also think that Jesus speaks the way he does here, because once again, he's inviting this crowd to understand who he is and what he has come to do in light of the Old Testament scriptures. And so back in Isaiah chapter 50, the prophet calls out, to this rebellious people who, who are about to face God's judgment for their sin. And in verse 10, he says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Right? Isaiah calls the people to trust in the light that God will provide for his people through the, the coming servant. The, the future servant Messiah. And then in verse 11, he warns the people about trying to rely on themselves. When he says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Friends, if we try to rely on our own goodness or our, our own uh, attempts to be right with God, our own efforts, then we are playing a losing game because by nature we are in darkness. But the good news is that God promises to provide light for his people, for those who will trust in him, and now we see that the fulfillment of that comes through the life and ministry of Jesus. And so it all comes down to how we perceive Jesus. If our spiritual eyes are unhealthy, then we will reject him and his purposes for our lives, his claim over our lives. But if our spiritual eyes are healthy, then we will recognize him for who he is, and we will submit ourselves to him in faith. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus continues to address the hostile people in this crowd over their unwillingness to believe in him. And as he does so, he warns us by extension. Right? As we said last week, Jesus and his message are either inherently compelling to us, or they're not. And if they're not, then no amount of miracles will convince us otherwise. 
Jesus is who he is. He has said what he has said. He's done what he has done. And he calls us to respond to him on that basis by turning from our sin and placing our trust in what he has done to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. And if we will follow him, then our lives will be full of the light that only he can provide. And so this morning, may we have eyes to see the light of Jesus. And may we respond to him in faith. Let's pray together.